Well, I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me in the classroom. I'm in the midst of a lecture in front of my students, and things are going well. I'm in a groove, feeling good about what I'm saying. Got my visual aids up on the screen. The students have their laptops open. They seem engaged. They're typing out notes. Everything feels good. I feel like I'm communicating clearly. I feel like the things that I'm sharing with them are important. And inevitably, a hand will shoot up, and a student will ask the all-too-familiar but very annoying question, is this going to be on the test? (laughs) It happens every semester. Now, here's what I want to say. I want to say, of course, it's going to be on the test. Would I be wasting my time and energy telling you all these things if I didn't think it was important and if it didn't matter? I don't do that. I, I, I try to respond in a much more gracious manner. But it can be frustrating for a professor to go through the process of setting expectations for his students, telling them what they need to know, going through it carefully, and then to hear them ask, are we going to be tested on this? Or put it another way, does this, hey, professor, does this really matter? Ask Ross. He knows the same thing. Now, obviously, God is not a man. And God is not a professor in a classroom with a bunch of students, but I wonder sometimes if he gets frustrated with me and with you when he's clearly communicated to us what is important and what he values, only to have us wonder, is this going to be on the test? Specifically this morning, I'm talking about good deeds, about good works. Is God concerned about us performing good works? It seems clear in his word that he is. That he does value it. But as evangelicals and descendants of the Reformation, we can find ourselves so entranced by the principles of sola fide and sola gratia that we can begin to downplay the importance of doing good works. So here's an announcement for all of us here this morning. According to the passage we're about to read, good works are going to be on the test. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and we will look at it. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we dove into chapter 2. We, we focused on Paul's warning to a, a specific group of people, hypocritical moralists. The folks who judge others while practicing the very same things. They should not expect to escape the judgment of God, Paul says, knowing that as they continue to judge others while failing to repent themselves, they are storing up wrath upon their heads for the day of judgment. And we noted that although Paul won't mention it specifically until verses 12 and even more clearly in verse 17, that who he has in mind as he writes these verses are his own people, the Jews. But we'll deal with that when I get back from Israel in a couple of weeks. That will be perfect timing, won't it? Actually, let's back up to verse 1. Let's just read all the way through so we get the flow here. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly, or do you have contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness, 
In your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And we left off mid-sentence, so here we come now with verse 6. Who will render to each person according to what? His deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Underline this verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God. Now, we're going to get a little bit nerdy this morning. I heard somebody say yes. I like that. That's good. That's good. We're going to get a little nerdy this morning. And in a second, I'm going to put a diagram up on the screen, and there's a reason for it. Our passage, verses 6 through 11, this morning, form what we call in biblical studies a chiasm. Say it with me. Chiasm. Good. What is a chiasm? Well, let me give you the official definition. A chiasm is a literary tool whereby an author produces balanced statements in direct, inverted, or antithetical parallelism, all of which symmetrically encompass a central idea or theme. Is that going to be on the test? <laughs> right? You're, some of you were thinking that. I get it. I'll give you a very simple example. Some of you were alive in 1961 when JFK gave his very famous inaugural address, and he said this, ask not what your country can do for you. I'm doing the JFK voice. <laughs> ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That wasn't bad, huh? Thank you. Thank you very much. So that's a very simple chiasm. It, it's a crisscross structure. Socrates once wrote this, and I, I don't know his voice, so... Socrates said, bad men live that they may eat and drink, whereas good men eat and drink that they may live. So it's a crisscross structure. And you'll find this in, in Greek philosophy. You'll find it in, in the Bible. And you'll even find large chiasms in the works of Shakespeare. So let me put on the screen what this chiasm looks like. Here's my nerdy diagram. And it's color-coded to help you. Okay, so what you see here is the color codes, the verses that correspond to each other, and you can see the V-type pattern, right? Verses 6 corresponds with verse 11. Both of them speak of God uh, rendering a judgment according to deeds without partiality. Verses 7 and 10 both talk about what it means to do good within that judgment. Verses 8 and 9 in the middle both speak to evildoing within that particular judgment. So it's a, it's a V-shaped pattern. It's a crisscross structure. Does everybody sort of see that? We'll come back to it a couple times so that you can understand it better. But that's essentially what a chiasm is, and you see this oftentimes in Paul's writing. Now, there's something unusual about this particular chiasm. Normally, the central theme or the central idea would be at the center of the structure. That's normally what happens in a chiasm. The author will use, in this case, it would be verses 8 and 9 as the big idea, but that is not the situation here. In this, the big idea is found on the outside verses, verses 6 and 11. The big idea that Paul wants to communicate here is that the judgment of God is rendered according to deeds and it's rendered without favoritism or without partiality. So we know that God's judgment in this respect is always thorough, it's truthful, and it's righteous, but it will be, it will be placed upon every single person who has ever walked on the earth. 
Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see judgment spoken of in a collective fashion, but here we see a very individual judgment, each person according to their deeds. So here's where we're headed this morning in terms of this message. There's really four parts to it. First of all, we want to establish that baseline truth that you see there in Paul's chiasm. Secondly, we want to look at the two outcomes of God's judgment, a good outcome and a bad outcome, and they're both very clear, aren't they? The blue is good, the green is bad. See it? Third, we're going to ask an important question. Is there a contradiction between salvation by faith alone and a judgment according to works? And hopefully, by the time I get to that point, you won't have walked out thinking I've become a heretic. Okay, because we're going to talk a lot about deeds today, which I know makes people a little bit uncomfortable. And then fourth and finally, we'll wrap up with a closer look at the value of good deeds in our understanding of Reformed soteriology. What does it mean for us in terms of our deeds? So, let's start at verse 6. Very simple statement here. God will render to each person according to his deeds. Do you believe that? How many of you guys believe that? Good, it's in the word. Let me say it again. How many of you guys believe that? Good, it's in the word. So it can't get much clearer than that, right? This is the basic principle that underlies all of God's dealings with mankind going back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, eternal life for one, eternal wrath for the other. And it's likely that as Paul wrote this, he had in mind a particular verse from Psalm 62. We read it earlier in our call to worship. The very last verse of Psalm 62, verse 12 says, You, O Lord, Render to a man according to his work. So Paul is simply repeating what was a clearly understood and accepted statement by the Jews in the Old Testament. So we see this same principle repeated over and over again in the New Testament. And sometimes, again, as descendants and children of the Reformation, we're so entranced by salvation, by by faith alone, through grace alone, right? That sometimes we just, we sort of ignore all these verses that talk about good deeds. But just to prove this point and to convince you that Romans 2.6 is not just a single verse or a single outlier, I'm going to give you a whole long litany of passages that speak to this very same principle. You're probably going to get a little bored by this. It's a lot, of, a lot of scripture, but it's worth looking at. Let's start here with Hebrews chapter 12. Very important verse. Pursue peace with all men, the author says, and the sanctification, what's that? Sanctification, growing in conformance with the image of Christ, right? Spiritual maturity. The sanctification without which nobody, no one will see the Lord. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Let's look at a second verse from Ephesians 5. For this, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, So immorality, impurity, covetousness will nullify any inheritance that a person might have in the kingdom. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 6. Now this is... One of two large, what we call vice lists that I'm going to share with you. First Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do deeds matter? Absolutely. How about Galatians 5? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? It matters. There's a connection here between obedience and disobedience and eternal life or eternal wrath. Now, the classic, the classic passage that speaks of faith and works, of course, comes from James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? No. Faith and works go hand in hand, right? That's why we're talking about deeds this morning. Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Rhetorical question. Of course he was. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Faith and works coming together. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, that's great. Well, what about Jesus? Did he talk about it? Yes. Matthew chapter 16, he said this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to what? His deeds. He said something similar in John chapter 5. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So Paul's saying the exact type of thing that Jesus is saying here in John chapter 5. And of course, it's always good to end in Revelation, right? Get to the end of the book. And we'll, we'll close it out here. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. This is Jesus. And I will give to each one of you according to what? According to your deeds. Now, you might be saying, whoa. I, I think I've read these passages before, but I've never really looked at them closely. It, it's, it appears that my deeds really do matter. Yes, they do. They're on the test. You may think, well, I'm a Christian. Hold on a second. I, I didn't know there's any judgment for me. Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that there is. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Later, we'll get to Romans 14. This will be the last verse. It says, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So that's a little bit of overkill, but have we established the principle that Paul wants to establish in Romans 2.6, right? That, that God will judge every person according to their deeds. Now, let's move to the second part. Let's look at the two outcomes according to that judgment. So if we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and our deeds are going to be displayed before him, what are the two outcomes? Let's go put this back up here and we'll take a look at them. Outcome number one is very simple, and you see it in the blue in verses 7 and 10. Doing good leads to eternal life. True? You're all afraid to answer right now. That's what it says. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, what do they get? Eternal life. And the corresponding verse in the chiasm, verse 10, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Hmm. So there's two key words there in verse 7. The word perseverance refers to someone who remains steadfast and constant in doing something. They're steadfast and they're constant in their efforts. 
In this, in this case, in their efforts to do good. And then Paul defines what he means by doing good here. He says that they seek for glory and honor and immortality. So they stand fast in this. They're constant in it. They strive after it. The Greek word uh, verb for seeking here, zeteo, is written in the present tense. And whenever you see the present tense, you know that what the author is trying to say is that this is something that's ongoing. It's continual. And he often uses the present tense here. This person is continually doing good, he says. Continually striving after. Continually craving those three things. Glory and honor and immortality. What that means is they have a persistent lifestyle of godliness. In everything that they do, not perfectly, but in everything that they do, they strive to glorify God and they strive to honor him in everything. And by doing so, they trust that that will result in eternal life. That's essentially what's being said here in verses 7 and 10. So that's outcome number one. Good deeds leads to eternal life. Okay, this is that moment where I said, don't get up and leave early thinking I've gone heretic on you because we're going to clarify some things in a second, but let's deal with what the text actually says. Outcome number two is also simple, and you see it there in the green in verses 8 and 9. Not doing good deeds leads to wrath, doesn't it? But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what do they get? Wrath and indignation. And the corresponding verse in the chiasm, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. By the way, that priority of the Jew first, we'll deal with that the next time I'm in Romans. We'll talk about what that means, okay? So hold off on that for now. Those who are destined for wrath are first and foremost marked by selfish ambition. Take note of that. Those who are destined for wrath, first and foremost, are marked by selfish ambition. What does that mean? That means they're constantly putting themselves forward. They're constantly highlighting their wants and their needs. The focus has to be on them. In other words, what they do is they glorify themselves and not God. That's essentially what's being said here. And therefore, because they want, they want the glory and they don't want to reflect the glory to God, they do not, they will not obey the truth. Again, we see Paul using the present tense here, meaning that those who are destined for wrath are continually, constantly disobeying the truth. And at the same breath, constantly and continually obeying or following after unrighteousness. And so the result is obvious. There's no life in this person. They are dead in their sins. They are full of rebellion. And therefore, they will suffer God's wrath. And they will suffer his thumos, his indignation, the better translation is, they will suffer his boiling anger because of their unrighteousness. So one of the things we learn from these two outcomes, and in particular by Paul's use of the present tense, is this. That a man's continual or habitual works are a reflection of the condition of his heart. Whether that's good or bad. Right? This is just a basic principle. A man's continual or habitual works are a reflection of the condition of his heart. He is either seeking after God or he is seeking after his own pleasure. He's either on the throne of his, throne of his life or he's allowed God to be on the throne of his life. His focus is either honoring God or putting himself forward to be honored. A man's heart determines the course of his life, right? Right? A man's heart determines the course of his life. A, a, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And these are all the principles that Paul is putting into this particular chiasm here 
in Romans chapter 2. And so in the the end, judgment is according to our deeds. That's what Paul's saying. The deeds will, will lead us to a particular judgment, whether good or bad. And as he says in verse 11, with God, there's no favoritism. There's no partiality. Now, we as human beings, we constantly judge based on outward appearances, don't we? We're always seeking after people who are powerful or wealthy or attractive or celebrity. None of that matters to God. None of it matters to him. There is no partiality. There's no favoritism in how he judges. He always gets it right, and he always judges righteously. Aren't you glad for that, by the way? Me too. Good. So we've, we've, we've exposited the text. We pray and go home. Should I just send you out this morning and say, go and do good? It's not quite that simple, is it? There's more to it. And it's not that simple because of what Paul writes elsewhere in so many of his letters. In fact, I'm going to give you, uh, we're going to sort of take a peek ahead into the next chapter, chapter 3. Paul's going to argue this. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has now been made known, and this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Right? So Paul opposes justification by works of the law, but at the same time, he affirms a judgment according to deeds, and there is no contradiction in that. Did you hear me? He opposes justification by works of the law, and yet he affirms a judgment according to deeds, and there is no contradiction in that. So how do we reconcile it? Well, if, if I were to send you out and say, write me a paper, students, write me a paper on how you reconcile those two things, and you went out there and did the research, you'd find out there's probably five or six theories out there that have been put forward by scholars over the centuries, only two of which have any merit whatsoever. Okay, so I'm going I'm to briefly share the first one, which is good, but I don't think is true, and then I'll share what I think is true. The first theory is this, that Paul is describing a hypothetical situation here in chapter 2. Hypothetical. He's saying that eternal life would be given to anybody who perfectly perseveres in doing good. Did you catch that? They would, they would be owed that, right? They would be owed eternal life if they could perfectly persevere in doing good. Such a person would receive glory and honor in immortality. But of course, that's not possible. And Paul knows that. So what he's doing is laying out a principle that is theoretically true, but not practically possible. Does that make sense? And his goal in doing that is to set up the crushing reality that is coming in chapter 3. And that is that none is righteous and none seeks after God. And therefore, the only way to salvation is by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that is all theologically true. So I have no problem with the theology of that particular position. It's very good, and very good conservative scholars have put it forward. I do see some weaknesses in that theory. I see some inconsistencies. I don't have time to go through them all today, but if you want to talk about it, I know Daniel does. I can see it in his eyes. If you want to talk about it this week, or find me after church, or, or, or talk to me this week, and I'll share with you why I think it's weak. I prefer a second theory. To me, it's a more robust theory about salvation that incorporates both the truth of Romans 3 and James 2, which is, of course, that, that, that classic conflict between, and it's really not a conflict, a perceived conflict that so frustrated Martin Luther in his day, right? Romans 3 and James 2. But I think this, this second theory incorporates both. First of all, let me just say it again. Our works really do matter. But we have to learn to make the distinction between earning salvation based on our works, that's false, 
and being judged according to our works. That's true. We have to make that distinction. What does it mean according to works? It means that God will take your good deeds, the fruit of your life, and he will, he will look at the body of work that you have done in your life as corroborating evidence that your salvation is authentic and true. Okay, so I, I sort of spoke in courtroom terms there, right? That's what he's going to do. He will take the body of work of your good deeds as corroborating evidence that your faith in Jesus is true and authentic. So let me say that again clearly because I don't want to mislead anybody here this morning. Your good deeds will never earn you salvation. Can I get an amen? Amen. But they will be accepted by God as evidence that you've trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Right? Indeed, that's why the gospel is good news. That your salvation is not dependent upon your good works. That it's only dependent upon the work that Christ has done on your behalf. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a gospel, right? We wouldn't have good news. And by the way, this is all the result of his sovereign work. Okay, so even the fact that he's going to take your good deeds as corroborating evidence to say, yep, this person is truly saved, it's all because of his sovereign work. Think about this. In the first place, the only reason that you've trusted in Christ was because of his sovereign election and calling in your life. True? In the second place, your good works were prepared for you to walk in in advance that you would accomplish them in your lifetime. And third, any good fruit that comes out of your life was brought about by the Holy Spirit working within you. So he's done all the work. You can put it this way. For Christians, the deck is stacked in your favor because God has done all the work for you. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, right? He will choose. And if in love he has marked you out as an object of his grace, he will. He will glorify himself in saving you and accomplishing the works he wants to do through you because he's sovereign. And on the last day, as you come to this judgment seat of Christ, as you give an account for your life, he will point to the body of work that you have done, which he himself produced in you, and say, yep, I've known that person from the beginnings of the world. The deck is stacked in your favor because of God's sovereignty. This is why we celebrate the good news of the gospel, right? Right? So here in Romans 2, I don't think Paul's talking about a hypothetical situation. I think he's talking about a very real judgment of works. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now here's the key question. Who exactly will persevere in doing good? Those whom God has chosen. Those whom God has regenerated. Those whom God has called. Those whom God has justified. Those whom God has sanctified. That's who. All Paul's describing here is, here's the word, Christians. True believers, true Christians. Whether Jew or Gentile, people who have trusted in Christ alone and have been saved by God's grace alone. And yet their judgment is according to their deeds. Corroborating evidence that your faith and my faith is authentic and true. You with me? Good. Now, let's raise our proverbial hand and ask, the God, ask God the big question. Lord, thanks for all this great teaching about works. Is it going to be on the test? And the answer is what? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's on the test. I, I put it on the screen just in case <laughs> you didn't catch it. Our deeds are going to be on the test. Your deeds and my deeds are going to be tested, for we all must appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives, whether good or bad. Now, Paul talks about it again in 1 Corinthians 3. I'll put the, the passage on the screen. This is often referred to as the Bema seat judgment of believers. But let's take a look at this because this is going to tell us why our good deeds matter, even, I wouldn't say in spite of, but even because of the fact that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Paul says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, anybody that does ministry in the church, pay close attention. There is only one foundation to build upon, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Am I clear? Amen. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, the day of judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Okay? Your good deeds are going to be tested by fire. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. So picture the judgment day when the books are open, right? Revelation 20 talks about these books that are opened that reveal the deeds of men. There'll be no condemnation for for those who, are, who have trusted in Christ, our deeds will simply confirm the reality of our saving faith. They will confirm the reality of our union with Christ. There's no condemnation. But then each of our works done for the kingdom will pass through a test of fire. And the quality of each work will be tested. What's going to survive? What's going to burn up? The answer is it depends on the why of your works. The motivation for your work. What motivates you, what motivates your heart to do good deeds for the kingdom? In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul tells us that God will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose, listen, the motives of men's hearts. Okay, So it's not just the deeds, it's the motive for the deed that also gets disclosed. That's pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, that should make you shudder just a wee bit, like, ooh, Right? Because our motivation, sometimes we can hide our motivations on the outside by just doing good things, but our motivations are sinful, right? Disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So as our works are examined, the question will be, did we do these works out of a desire to see God glorified? Was that the motive of our heart? Was that what drove us to serve in the way that we served? If so, those works will survive. They will remain after the test of fire, and they will be as, as gold and silver and precious stones. Isn't that cool? They'll come through as precious things. And for those things, you and I will be rewarded in the life to come. So be encouraged, Christian. The work that you do here on the earth for the kingdom has eternal consequences. Did you know that? You're, you're not working for me, for the elder team. For, you're working to serve the Lord, and there are eternal consequences for that. That's fantastic. On the other hand, if our motive for kingdom work was clouded by sin, if we did it to glorify ourselves, then those works will be burned up. They'll be as wood, hay, and straw. And for those things, there will be loss instead of reward. Although such a man will still escape the flames of hell, right? He will be saved even though his works will be burned up. So Paul's affirming here in 1 Corinthians 3 that the judgment seat of Christ, the testing of the Christian, will not be a question of eternal life or eternal death, but a question of reward or loss. You see it there? 
So let me share with you um, a word picture. Now this is something the late Anthony Hokema, who was a reformed theologian and professor, once wrote about this. And he tried to give a practical example of what this looks like. I don't know if it's actually this, but I sort of like the picture. It helped me. Here's what he wrote. The failures and shortcomings of believers will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. But those failures and shortcomings will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Picture it like this. God has a file on every person. Let that sink in. I've always said God has the biggest hard drive I mean, on the fa- I mean, can you imagine how many, how many billions of people? It's a big file drawer, is what I'm saying. God has a file on every person. All you've ever done or said is recorded there with a grade from A to F. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God will open the file and lay out the tests with their grades. He will pull out all the Fs and put them in a pile. Then he will take all the Ds and Cs and Bs and pull the good parts of those files out and place them with the A's and put all the bad parts with the F's. That will leave only two piles, an A pile and an F pile. Then we will open another file, the book of life, and find your name because you're in Christ through faith. Behind your name will be a wood stick match made from the cross of Jesus. And he will take that match, light it, and set the F pile on fire with all your failures and deficiencies and burn it up. Those things will not condemn you, but they will not reward you either. They are considered a loss. Then he will take from your book of life a sealed envelope envelope marked free and gracious bonus, eternal life, and put it on the A pile. Then he will hold up the entire pile and declare this. By this, your life bears witness to the grace of my Father, the worth of my blood, and the fruit of my spirit. And according to these, you will have your reward Enter into the everlasting joy of your master. An A pile and an F pile. Now, again, I don't know if, I don't know if there's actual piles. But that, does that help you picture it? God is going to separate those things. The things that will survive and the things that will burn up. And then he will look at your A pile. And he will find your name in the book of life and say, Here's the corroborating evidence that you belong in the book of life. That I put you there. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that cool? Listen, we are reformed believers, right? We absolutely cherish the principle of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Without it, we would all be lost, right? But I want to close this morning by encouraging you to take seriously your works for the kingdom. They really do matter. They really do matter. While none of us will be justified by our works as believers, we can actively please our Father in heaven. We can genuinely do good deeds by means of an active faith that is empowered by the Spirit of God who lives within us. You and I can actually store up treasure in heaven right now. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't store up treasure down here. Store up treasure in heaven. We can do that right now. It's on layaway. But it's ours to claim in heaven because of God's grace. And the amazing thing is God promises to reward us for our efforts, even though all the works that we do came from him. That's amazing. It's all by his grace. Just as believers are accepted in Christ, so are a believer's works accepted in Christ. It is all by his grace. 
For example, if you look at the great heroes of the faith chapter in Hebrews 11, right? There's this long list of, of heroes of the faith. If you look at, their, look at that list, there's not one person who, who the author of Hebrews reports his sins and his failures. It's all this great record of all the, the great things they did by what? By faith. The blood of Christ has washed away all their sins and failures, and what is left are the things that are pleasing to him. Why are they pleasing? Because they were done by faith. And God delights in rewarding him, those, those faithful saints. He delights in rewarding us, his children, for faithful work. It's actually in his nature to do so, to delight in giving good gifts to his children. So the Lord appoints us to his work. He gives us the strength to accomplish it. He guides us by his spirit. He changes our affections and our motivations. And then when everything is said and done, he looks at you and he joyfully proclaims, well done. Well done. Friends, this should be a tremendous encouragement to us. If you're involved in kingdom ministry, I don't care if it's full-time ministry or it's, it's part-time volunteer, if it's stacking chairs, whatever it might be, this should be a great encouragement. When we're tired and discouraged, it's a refreshment to our souls to know that our Father in heaven delights in our hard work. He delights in it, even if it's less than perfect. How many of you guys, you're a dad or your mom, remember your, your, your child came home from, from school that first time and they'd done a finger painting? right? You, you know what I'm talking about. And it's not good, <laughs> but you loved it. It is full of flaws. That's us before our heavenly father, but we're his children. So he doesn't sit there and criticize our effort because it's not a Rembrandt. He takes our, our painting with all of his flaws and he puts it on the refrigerator door for everybody to see. He delights in it. So as you sit here this morning, if you've trusting trusted in Christ as, as your Savior and Lord, know this. You have been chosen by God and justified solely on the basis of Christ's work, and nothing can separate you from his love. So without any fear of condemnation, let that future judgment seat of Christ be a motivation to you for faithful service. There is no fear of the judgment seat of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. But let it be a motivation for faithful kingdom service. Let it give you value and purpose in everything that you do, especially in the body of Christ. While you still have time on the earth, seek to store up treasure in heaven, to glorify God. Let me give you just real quickly five reasons why this should matter. Number one, seek to do good deeds out of sheer gratitude to what God has done for you, out of gratitude and thankfulness. Number two, to adorn the gospel and to make it attractive to the lost people in your life. Number three, so that God might receive praise and honor and glory through your good deeds. Number four, to make your calling and election sure. Revealing the truth that you are a good tree that produces good fruit. And lastly, number five, so that one day you might hear those words, that sweet music to my ears and to your ears. Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want to hear? Bow your heads.